if you have your Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, starting at verse 2 and going to verse 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uh, covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies, prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her head be covered. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women are not independent of men, and men aren't independent of women. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of women, or of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman, woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Father, <laughs> help us this morning. We uh, can easily get off on tangents and say things that are cultural or say things out of sinfulness. But we want to be true to your word. And so I pray that you will um, help me to be careful with my words, to be truthful with my words as they find their context in scripture. And for all of us, would you give us hearts and minds and wills to listen carefully, uh, most importantly to your word, and to make sense of it for our day and our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Christ grips your heart and you respond to him in saving faith, you become a child of God. And everything changes. And that's one of the things that the Corinthians have been wrestling with. They have been wrestling with the implications of what it means to become a son and daughter of God. They've been called out of a world that ignored God, that uh, lived apart from God, that lived in disobedience to God. And now they are wrestling with the implications of what it means to serve that God who they had ignored and disobeyed. And Paul has been responding to just so many different questions that they've been raising. And we've gone through various chunks of scripture. Uh, verse, uh, chapters 1 to 4 have all uh, really centered around unity and around wisdom. Um, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man and unity as followers of Christ. Um, chapters 5 to 7 has all been about sexual holiness. That as uh, those who are God's children, we are not to pursue sexual immorality. That uh, our view of uh, sexual things impacts marriage, impacts singleness, impacts us, uh, just the way we live our life in a culture that is sex crazed. And then we were looking at verse, or chapters 8 to 10, and in those few chapters we looked at Christian liberty. And how it is that 
we have been freed from so many things to serve God and enjoy this world in which God has created, but we need to understand how to live uh, out those freedoms uh, uh, amongst those who don't know God, amongst those who do know God, and in the end of the day before God himself. As we come to chapter 11, we enter into another section of scripture now, and this section of scripture starts at uh, verse 2 of chapter 11 and goes to the end of chapter 14. And it's just guidance and instruction about how we worship together as a people of God. That we ought to be uh, informed in our worship from Scripture and not through the customs and the habits of the world around us. As uh, you could tell from just the tension as I was reading this text, uh, this is a complex text and it is a challenging text. It's complex because there are so many uh, things in this text that are unknown. There are um, different understandings of particular words. There are cultural things that we have no real understanding of what they were. We aren't, under, aren't aware of motivations behind certain behaviors. And so there's a lot in this text that we just aren't sure about. But it's challenging because it's not an easy passage culturally. And it's not an easy passage viscerally. Vis- viscerally. And it's not an easy passage psychologically. And so as we come to a passage like this, there's so many things that are pushing against us. We wrestle with God's created order of things and how God has created this order and worked it out in this world and in our lives. And I think just from having read this text now, you get a sense of what I'm talking about. One of the things that I have a great privilege of almost every Sunday is coming before you and declaring the whole counsel of God. And I'm thankful for a congregation who embraces the whole counsel of God, for one who understands that all Scripture is inspired, all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness, and that if we ever have an approach to Scripture where we say, well, you know, I'll take this Scripture, but not this Scripture, Um, I, I like this one, but not that one, then we really have become judges of Scripture ourselves and are no longer submitting to it, but we are judging it. And so I am thankful for the opportunity to submit to Scripture, and I'm thankful for the realization that so many of you want to do the same. I can't hope to do anything more than give a basic overview of this passage with a few insights here and there. My wife and I were out for our anniversary dinner um, last night, and I I said, I I think in the first, it was something like, I think it's around 36 or something like that. It is 36 years (laughs) we've been married. Um, And I remember the day we were married, um, August uh, 29th, uh, 1981. Um, But uh, we were just talking about things, and uh, we were talking about the Sunday sermon. And I I, I think it kind of went along these lines. My my wife says, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I said, well, I'm really wrestling with it. It's this text from 1 Corinthians. And I think she asked me along the lines, well, are you going to give them your opinion? (laughs) And I, I hope it's not my opinion. Uh, although, obviously, I've had to make some decisions from the text. I, I hope it's uh, a, a careful, uh, thoughtful explanation of God's word as far as I can see it. I think it's helpful to start with a big picture, and we'll work our way down to a few specifics. I think, first of all, it's helpful for us to understand that Paul's argument is rooted in a couple of things. It's rooted in the Trinity. When Paul talks about the various realities that we all have a head over us, one of the realities he talks about is that um, the head of Christ is God. That can be confusing to us because we might say to ourselves, well, I thought that God and Christ were equal. Well, they are. 
they have the same essence. They are equal in persons. They are equal in their deity. But there is a role difference between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the fact that they have different roles does not um, erase their equality. And so I think that's one thing that we have to understand as we work through here. Just as there are roles in the, in the Trinity, there are roles established in relationships that God has created here on earth for you and I to live in. And so what he's going to say about men and women is the same sorts of things that, that we understand to be true of Christ's relationship to God. I think a second thing that's helpful for us to understand is that when Paul wants to make his point, he goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And that's important because that's when God created this world. And at the end of chapter 2, he said it was very good. And Genesis 1 and 2 were the description of how God intended his creation to be and to live out their existence. But as we understand that at the end of chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 3, sin entered into the world and distorted the creation that God had made. And so Paul's argument goes back before sin entered the world into those first couple chapters of Genesis where God created the world and his intention was revealed through that creation. And the second thing that I want to draw to our attention because I'm not going to have time to really spend uh, uh, more on it than simply this. Verse 10 is a difficult verse. Verse 10 there is a conclusion, a part of his argument, and he talks about a sign or a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's a stumbling block for many people. I, I think for me, uh, this sign or this symbol of authority that's on her head is, is, the, is the woman's um, 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 I'm just the word escaped for me. Um, her willingness to embrace the role that God has given to her in relationship to men. And so she willingly embraces the symbol of authority, whatever that is, and she does it because of the angels. And you think, well, that's bizarre. Well, what do we mean, or what does Paul mean because of the angels? I think is it maybe three things that fit in there. Uh, the first one, I think, is simply that as we have been worshiping here today, we are just not part of a physical reality. We are part of a spiritual reality. And there are angels present, there are angels watching, there are angels observing our worship. And they are aware of the created order and the conventions of modesty and the differences between male and female. And so as we worship in a way that God has designed for us to worship, we acknowledge and we give deference to the angels who are witnessing our worship. Secondly, I think it can also mean that uh, Job indicates, I think, that the angels in Job 38.7 were present uh, at the very early days when God created the world. They were aware of the order and the design that God had created into this world, and that was established when, when he first uh, set the relationships of men and women rolling. And so uh, the woman is to cover her head with a symbol or sign of authority because the angels are aware of that established order. And I think the third reason is simply because the angels themselves even operate with a sense of correct decorum before God as they minister before God. And I think it's Isaiah chapter 6 that talks about the angels that are flying around the throne and with two of their wings they cover their faces. They're just aware of the, of the reality of the presence and the order that God has established in the world. So that's my understanding of verse 10. Come to um, another issue and Paul um, says there that um, he, he's not disbarring or saying that women cannot 
pray or prophesy in churches. He's saying that they should and they can, but with certain boundaries or restrictions. Well, some then will jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 14, if you're aware of the scripture, and say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 and, and on, that women are to keep silent in the church? So what is it? What's going on here? Uh, are we sort of messed up with what we're talking about? Well, some individuals will want to say that what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians is how a woman carries herself at home. And, or maybe in small groups. He's not at all addressing church. And so chapter 11 is about home, and chapter 14 is about public worship. I don't buy that one. I think that's a, an easy way out. I think secondly, there are those who simply want to say, well, Paul makes a concession. He, he really wants to say that women shouldn't pray or prophesy, but his bigger point is he's trying to establish the difference of roles in relationships. And so he makes a concession in chapter 14, which he cleans up in chapter 11, and he cleans it up in chapter 14. Some would simply say Paul just outright contradicts himself and doesn't care. I can't go that route. I believe the Holy Spirit has guided the writing of God's Word so that there is no error and there is no contradiction. So my understanding of it is simply this, that when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it's a chapter where Paul has been talking about the church um, to carefully weigh out prophecies that are presented to it. There is no problem with men and women praying and prophesying in the public gathering of the church. And that word prophecy, we'll get to it a little bit later, it's, it's a pretty weighty word which involves instruction and explanation. And so Paul has no trouble with men or women prophesying or um, uh, praying in church but when it comes to weighing those or discerning or judging them, he says that the women are to keep silent, that that is a role for the male leadership in the church. And so for me, there's no contradiction between chapter 11 and chapter 14. This is just for you that are, are, are kind of already connecting the dots. Finally, it's a complex passage, but I think the structure helps us understand a bit of the meaning. In this passage, if you notice, as I read it, Paul goes back and forth with statements about men and then a counterbalance statement about women. And he keeps going back and forth, back and forth every time except for one place. And that one place is in verse 13, where he says, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? There's no counterbalance, no counterpoint with instruction of men. And that seems to be the heart of the matter. And as you work yourself through the text, if you do what I did as I printed off this text and I just start marking off the printout copy, copy I underline sort of all the transition points in Paul's argument. It might not make any sense to you, but as I did it, it begins with now and then but and since and for, if then, but, since, for, since, but, for, neither, nevertheless, for, as, so. There's a clear, tight argument that Paul is following as he writes this out. And it's that argument that gives us a hint to the meaning, which is simply, um, no, it is not proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered. So that's just some preliminaries. As we come to the text then, uh, verse 2, I think we can deal with fairly quickly. I, I like the way that Paul starts in verse 2. He starts with a word of praise. And he says to them, now I commend you. It's fascinating to me that when you come to verse 17, he says, now I do not commend you. So he's got a word of praise as he starts this part. He doesn't have a word of praise when he gets to the other part. What's he praising them for? Well, he's praising them 
because they have acknowledged him. They, have, they are thoughtful of him. They keep him in their mind. He's also praising them because, in general, they keep the traditions that he has passed down to them. Traditions are simply things that we've heard. And so Paul has heard stories about Jesus. He's heard about the gospel. He's heard about doctrine. And so these things that he's taught, that he's learned from Christ, he's passed down to them. They've embraced them by and large, and he's commending them for that. I think any of you who have ever had to deliver a criticism or a negative comment, it's helpful sometimes to start first with a word of praise or commendation. And so that's what Paul does. It's a genuine word of praise and commendation. But then you come to verse uh, 3, and Paul says, but I want you to understand. So there's something going on there. And he explains it this way. He says, I want you to understand that the head of, uh, or, or that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The arrangement there is helpful. Uh, it's, it's almost a random uh, arrangement. It's an odd sequence. It's not what we would expect if we thought it through and tried to put it reasonably. And that's because Paul is not concerned with establishing hierarchies. He's not concerned with, with setting this out, with making a case of, of, of one being inferior or subordinate to another. He's not wanting to establish a chain of command. What he wants to do is simply make a point about the fact that there are roles in relationships and that every one of us have people that we um, are under or that we respond to. That doesn't mean that we are not equal to them. It simply means there is a difference in the roles. And so he says, Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. What do we mean by head? There's a number of suggestions thrown out. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm not even going to give them all to you. Uh, um, uh, I will, but I won't explain them. One is the suggestion that it means authority. I think there's a lot of things for that suggestion. Um, and I think it, you wouldn't go wrong if you embrace that one. It's not the one that I land on. Another one is that head means source. Um, it's one that's um, not really well attested in, in secular language or in the Old Testament Greek version of the Bible. Um, uh, it seems to me fairly highly suspect. And after all, how can Christ or God be the source of Christ? And so I don't embrace that understanding of head. The, the understanding of head that I embrace seems to be a meaning which simply means head means the preeminent one or the uppermost or prominent or foremost. And so whether one is referring to a, a physical extremity such as the top of a mountain or the head of a river uh, to that which is first or to that which is prominent or to that which is determinative or to that which is, is represented by virtue of its prominence, to say that something is prominent is not to imply that whatever comes next is inferior of necessity, something has to come first, and then other things come second. But it doesn't imply anything negative about those things that come second. And so for me, the best understanding and translation of the word head is one that comes along the meaning of what is preeminent or uppermost or prominent. What's going on in Corinth? It seems like whatever is happening on there is dishonor or shame that the authority or the head or the one that is prominent is being dishonored or shamed by the behavior or actions. The concern is now, or is how the head is covered when one is praying or prophesying. We all have, know what praying is. We, 
pray before the Lord. And prophecy is really foretelling, not foretelling, foretelling. It's explaining the word of God. And so remember, Paul would say in another place, I wish that you would all prophesy. It's not something that is just restricted for men and not for women. But the crux of the matter is that somehow there's a problem here because women are praying with their heads uncovered. Paul is not clear about the shame that attaches to a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. And part of our difficulty is we're not clear why they chose to do that. But as a result of that, there's a lot of speculation. Some suggest that the issue is hair, that they're not wearing their hair properly. And in that culture, in that day, the way a woman wore her hair said a lot about her relationships and her life. Normally, women would not go out in public with their hair down. They would put their hair up in a bun or in pins, and they would go out. And that was a a sign of respect to men and, in particular, to their husbands. Hair that flowed down or that was loose or that was disheveled out in public was sometimes a symbol or association with prostitution or with an adulteress. And on the other side, for a woman to go out in public in those days with their head shorn was also a sign of disgrace. And so some want to say what was going on in the church was that women were not um, honoring uh, um, their husbands and men by having their head up in uh, uh, their hair in a bun. I'm not convinced that that's the issue. Um, I think that what Paul is talking about is a covering on their head. The word cover is referred to a number of times in this text. Um, We see it, for example, illustrated when Haman, uh, some of you may be familiar with the story of Esther, and uh, Haman was the the villain in that story, and he wanted to kill Mordecai, and there was this amazing um, plan that God in his providence ordained. Um, Haman came to a banquet, and in the banquet it was revealed that he was betraying um, the queen, and so he said it went home, he went home and he, and, and he covered his head in shame. It's not a reference to his hair. It's the same word that's used here. He put something over his head as he went home. Uh, in, in these days, um, we have secular authors who point to the fact that, uh, uh, that men, um, when they went into worship, would take their toga and they would wrap it up over their head, which makes sense to the Uh, verse 4, where it literally means having down um, from the head. And as they would go into worship, they would flip their toga up over their head, so their head would be covered as they would worship. Well, it makes sense then in verse 4 that Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, which is Christ. Paul doesn't want pagan practices being brought into the worship of God, and so it would be dishonoring for a man to have their head covered, i.e., whip their uh, toga out and place it over their head as they go in and worship the Lord. According to Paul, that action, if a man were to do that, would shame not his anatomical head, but his spiritual head, which is Christ. The whole point seems to be that Paul is talking about a covering. In verse 5, he clearly envisions that both men and women pray and prophesy, but there's something going on with the women that are participating with their heads uncovered. To have their head covered in whatever that means was a symbol of modesty. It was a symbol of their innocence, of their virtuousness, that they were untouchable in their marriage relationship, not not unlike wearing a ring. It's a symbol that one is married. And what Paul is getting at, and what is true, is that respectable women don't draw attention to themselves. The issue is modesty in public worship. 
so important is this principle that Paul uses very strong language when he writes about this, and he says that if a woman is not aware of these cultural realities and and chooses to worship God against these cultural realities, that that the disgrace involved in doing that is not unlike the disgrace attached to prostitution or extreme feminism. A woman who participates in worship without this head covering dishonors her head, specifically her husband and in general the men gathered at worship. Whatever is going on here, whatever Paul is getting at by this covering, what he wants to make sure is that men and women are distinguishable in worship. I think that's the point that he's getting at, and we'll come back to this again and again, that Paul is wanting to make sure that there is no blurring of the distinctions or of the sexes between male and female. And he wants women in worship to adorn themselves in a certain way different from men. There's no benefit gained from trying to guess why the women were had their heads uncovered, since Paul doesn't give us any reason or clues. But again, what is clear is to engage in public worship uncovered, whatever that means, brings shame to the woman's head. So, at the end of this section, verse 4 to 6, it ends with one of only two imperatives in the text, she should be covered. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, Paul gets to that in verses 7 to 15, because of glory. And Paul now, in these verses 7 on, is explaining what he wrote in verses 4 and 5. That the way we live and the way we worship reflects back on our spiritual head, or our metaphorical head, so to speak. And so the first part of verse 7 explains verse 4. A man should not cover his head, because he reflects the image and the glory of God. And that's the creational intent, that God created man first. The last part of verse 7 explains verse 5. The woman should cover her head because she reflects the glory of man. And in a worship setting, when persons are to give glory only to God, Paul reasons then that, that men worship God with their head uncovered and women worship God with their head covered so that they give glory to their spiritual head. The point is simply this. Both men and women are the glory of another. And I think men need to work this out in relation to our, uh, what that means. We are the glory of Christ. I wanted to spend a lot of time on that, but I don't have any time on that. And women reflect the glory of the man. Verses 8 and 9, Paul explains how the woman is the glory of man. It's fairly simple. He simply says, for man was not made from a woman, but woman from man. It's going back to Genesis 7 in creation. It's very clear. God created Adam. And then as Adam realized that there was nobody compatible with him, nobody like him, uh, nobody that he could name that would be suitable for him, then God created the woman. And he took the woman out of the rib of Adam. And so in verse 11, he's drawing on that analogy. He says, For man was not made from the woman, but woman from the man. Neither was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. God created woman to be a helpmate for the man and companion for the man. It's nothing about equality. It's simply role. And so Paul is explaining then by that how the woman gives glory, uh, particularly um, to her husband and in general to the man. But you know, uh, people have just amazing ways of distorting things like this. 
And that's why Paul gives verses 11 and 12, and he states it very clearly with a nevertheless. You see, if he just ended at verse 9, then there would be all kinds of abuses. There's already enough abuses of male authority and of male leadership and of male headship in the world and in the church that we don't need any more. And in fact, we need to correct them and address them. And Paul helps us understand that as he comes to verses 11 and 12 there with this nevertheless. He's concerned that we don't misunderstand, that we don't go too far, that we conclude somehow that uh, the woman is inferior to the man. And Paul's purpose has never been to argue that point. And so he provides this needed counterpoint to anyone who wants to take verses 8 to 9 too far. To men who might abuse their headship and have an unbiblical view of authority and submission for any of us who get out of hand with our understanding of male leadership, Paul says we need each other. We are interdependent. We cannot exist in a functional, healthy, healthy way without one another. And in the Lord, men and women are independent and therefore are interdependent and therefore equal. Neither of us can exist without the other. And while it is true that woman came from a man suggesting the male's priority, and that she represents the glory of man, that's counterbalanced by the fact that men now come from women. And it's this interdependence that we have, and Paul wants to continue to establish that, that we need each other. We need each other in the home. We need each other in the church. We need each other in culture. And that's balanced off by verses 11 and 12. Peter makes the same point. In in chapter 3, I think it's of 1 Peter, where he's talking about the roles of men and women. In verse 7, he concludes by wrapping it up and says, but after all, we are all co-heirs of the salvation in Christ Jesus. We are independent and we are equal before God. With verse 13, then, we come full, 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 circle, full circle. And here, I, I love what Paul does. I find this stuff so helpful. These little things that I find helpful. It's another imperative. It's the only other one. It says, judge for yourself. I like that. Paul says, okay, you're smart people. You're such, Think this through. Work it out. One of the things I love about Paul, and sometimes you might think, well, he's a little bit wordy. The thing I, I love and appreciate about Paul is he doesn't tell us what to think. He teaches us how to think. And I think that's one of the most important things you can teach your children, your grandchildren. If you're a teacher, you can teach your students. Is not teach them what to think, but teach them how to think. Because if you teach them how to think, most often they will learn to think correctly. And so this is what Paul is doing here. He says, judge for yourself. Think it through. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. What's going on here? Help. <laughs> I think what Paul is, is saying here is, is listen, there, there's some things that, that, that we just get. There's some things that are just instinctive in us. We, we see it in creation as we observe the animal kingdom and, and the difference between uh, male and female animals. There's distinctions that we see naturally in, 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 in men and women that are created things. And 
The example that he uses here is hair. And the reality is that in general, in general, that women have long hair and men have short hair. It's, it's not a, a, a given, it's just in general. And the thing that I have observed, I've not been around long, but that generally women always tend to have hair that's longer than men. And it changes as, 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 as culture goes. So when men had longer hair, women had even longer hair. You think about the 60s and the 70s. Um, as men got shorter hair, women got shorter hair, but it was still longer than the male hair. It's just, it's sort of a natural thing. I was watching the kids at DVBS on Friday night, and of course, the, or Friday, the sermon was going through my head, and I was just looking. All the little girls there had long hair without exception, and all the little boys had short hair. Nobody's telling them to grow their hair long or for the, the boys to cut their hair short. It's just sort of a, a natural way that we have of um, expressing the difference between genders. And so the freedom that women have to pray in, uh, and prophesy in public worship, what Paul is saying is you can't disregard social conventions. You can't dis disregard what is natural. And what is natural is the distinction between male and female. What is natural is an understanding of God's design and, his, and, it, and, and God's created order. And so what he's saying, and I believe this is where it becomes now applicable to you and I today, is what Paul is saying here is that in our public worship and in our lives and in our homes, we need to be very careful about blurring the distinction between the sexes. I think that's at, what is at the heart of what Paul is saying here as I've wrestled it through. We need to be very careful about blurring the distinction between the sexes. Our problem today is that culturally, we are moving towards exogeny. That seems to be, um, for many, the natural view, but I believe it's an unnatural view. And more than ever, this culture is teaching and promoting that not only are there no longer differences between male and female, but there are also a variety of other genders that are not included in male and female. And so I believe that the church has to be even more exacting. And as Christian parents in the homes as we're raising our children, we need to be even more exacting. And as those who have our grandchildren around us, we need to be even more exacting in maintaining the creational order and the creational differences that God has made between male and female. And then that order is also something that is not only maintained and taught and lived out in the home, but it's taught and maintained and lived out in the church. God's intention is that the created order of things, in the created order of things, is that there be male and female, and that there be no blurring of those distinctions. So Paul is asserting in this text, whatever it means to have their head covered, at the core of it, Paul is exerting creational distinctiveness. If you're a man, you are not supposed to look like a man or woman or act like a woman. And if you're a woman, you're not supposed to look like or act like a man. That's what Paul is saying, I think, at the heart of this particular text. The issue is not head coverings or the one one keeps their hair. The issue is worship and acknowledging the way that God has created this world and established order. So what does that mean for us here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church?
some of you may have already been jumping here and saying, so what? Really, like this is a cultural issue. You don't even know what it is. So how does it have any application to what we do today? Well, I've already hinted at some of the application. Paul says, this is a practice in all the churches. This is not a local cultural reality. He says, this is what I teach in all the churches. Therefore, this is for all the churches. Male and female, although equal, are also different. And God has ordained that men have responsibility to lead while women have a complementary and supportive role. This passage is not about the subordination of women or any inferiority because Paul has already reminded us that we are interdependent. And this biblical thinking is so important. For the principles of God's word are timeless. The application of those principles are cultural and rooted in specific periods of time, but God's principles are timeless. Each culture has different ways of maintaining these distinctions. As I've already uh, indicated, I believe our culture is pushing towards um, not maintaining those distinctions in any way, but erasing those distinctions. And therefore, the application of this text for us as a church, as people of God, and as those who follow God is to um, be very specific and deliberate in maintaining the identity of male and female as followers of Christ. Furthermore, I believe that we should, as a church, continue to affirm the role of women in our church and in ministry, as Paul says, in prayer and in prophecy and corporate worship. The contribution is not to be slighted or ignored. Nevertheless, as Paul says, the woman's participation in these things is to be in a way that reflects the culture's distinctions And if the culture doesn't have it, the way we maintain the distinction between men and women. Loved ones, I feel like I've been spewing. I hope that it has made some sense to you. And our obedience in the end of the day is to God. And our thinking is to be shaped by God's revealed truth. And our commitment then is to Try and understand God's truth and then to embrace God's truth and then to live God's truth out in our lives and in our worship together as God's people. May God help us to grasp the principles of this text and apply them to our homes and to our church. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted to... to to have told us that there are only two sexes, male and female. Can God be trusted when he says that there is order in relationships which does not imply inferiority but is necessary for proper functioning? Can God be trusted? If God can be trusted, loved ones, then we ought to obey him and willingly submit to his word and his guide and his counsel in his life. God's creational order and the distinctives that he has built into creation are God's good gift to us to enjoy and to rejoice in, not to be endured or resented. May God help us to live in such a way that we give ultimately glory to God and God alone. Father, we thank you for your word and for its instruction in our lives. I pray that you'll take this word now and as we each personally wrestle with it, would you help us to um, 
not discard it because we don't like it or because it offends us, but to say, okay, God, what does it mean and how do I bring my life in line with it? We pray these things in Jesus' name.